The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Chip Conley, is a best-selling author, hospitality entrepreneur, and former head of hospitality and strategy at Airbnb. He recently served on the boards of the Burning Man Project and the Esalen Institute, and he's the author of Peak and the New York Times bestseller, Emotional Equations. He currently heads the Modern Elder Academy, and his new book is Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Chip is the subject of the cover story of the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Chip Conley, welcome to the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Rami. So, you know, I want to talk to you about wisdom at work. I know you have a new book coming out in January. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about that. That one, wisdom at work is is about the making of a modern elder. I understand that your new book is talking about midlife. Yeah. Learning to love midlife. And the subtitle is 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. And it, it's really chronicles my last five years, six years actually, of creating a place called the Modern Elder Academy and working with, you know, three to 4,000 alumni around the topic of how do you navigate midlife and shouldn't there be rites of passage and rituals in one's 40s, 50s, and 60s, and frankly, throughout all of our life. But yeah, it's it's been quite a quite an endeavor and I've learned a whole lot about the Rodney Dangerfield of life stages, <laughs> midlife. <laughs> don't <laughs> get, get no, no respect. respect. No respect. So, you know, we'll, we, we'll talk about it when maybe when the book comes out, if we get a chance. But is it a prequel to Wisdom at Work or a sequel to Wisdom at Work? Good question. It is, it's funny because Wisdom at Work, the making of a modern elder, was my experience at Airbnb where they called me the modern elder in my first couple of months there because I was twice the age of the average employee. And then they and I said, I don't want to be a modern elder. That sounds like I'm elderly. And they said, no, elder and elderly are two different things. A modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, wow, that's what I want to be when I grow up. So yes, I'll be a modern, I'll be your modern elder. The learning of midlife is really a sequel to it, even though from an age perspective, midlife sounds like it happens before elderhood. But elderhood could happen, frankly, at any age. You know, if you're a football player, 
in the NFL at 35, you're, you're an elder. So, so yeah, it's it sort of the wisdom at work is more my, my experience of what it was like to be a boomer in the land of millennials. Yeah, I, I did a little research on the demographics of Airbnb and the average age, what I found, who knows if this is accurate, because I got it from, you know, Google, but they said the average age is between 20 and 30. So yeah, that's a very yeah. young 26 uh, was the workforce. average age when I was there. It's probably yeah. crept up to 28 at this point, but I was right. 52 when I joined. So I was twice the age of the average. Yeah, person. yeah, yeah. Okay, but I want to I want to take a, a, a you know, step to the side for a second. We'll get to the making of a modern elder in a few minutes. But I really want to talk to you about your sense of Burning Man and Esalen, mm. because you were recently serving on the boards of both, and I've had experience with neither. So mm. I want to get your sense of them. Sure, especially how. These two phenomena, Burning Man and Esalen, reflect and impact American spirituality. So, so let me flesh this out for you so you know where I'm coming from and see if the question makes any sense to you. I mean, Esalen's been around since 1962. Mm -hmm. And in, in its own mission statement, it sees itself as a, quote, creative laboratory an incubator of human potential, asking the daring and curious questions that traditional university and religious institutions can't and or won't. So let's just deal with that for a second. Mm. I don't know about you know universities. I taught for 10 years at a university. I don't know what questions they were supposed to ask or didn't, but I live and breathe in religious institutions. And I'm curious as to what you think the questions they can't ask or won't ask might be. Mm, that's a, it's a, a provocative mission statement from Esalen. Wait till you see Burning Man's mission statement is probably even more so. I would say that, that Esalen has always imagined that the boundaries of human potential have been constrained by cultural influences. And you know, today that might mean boundaries around gender or or race, but in the past it might be boundaries around, you know, well, it definitely was in the 1960s and 70s around psychedelics, which has interestingly made a comeback. But I think for for many people, the reason that they liked Esalen, and it was the, there's a book called The Religion of No Religion that, that defined Esalen, was there was no specific set of dogma. It was really more the poo-poo platter <laughs> of modern spirituality served up in a way that felt, you know, quite transformative on the Big Sur coast of California. And so the, the kinds of questions that might come up would be questions about, you know, patriarchy or about, you know, how do, how do we consider, you know, I was at an Esalen workshop 30 years ago talking about artificial intelligence. It's become a hot topic, but 30 years ago, it was sort of not a topic that was actually considered much. So Esalen has something called CTR, the Center for Theory and Research, which actually does deep dive con confabs of leaders around the world, thought leaders on particular topics. They're usually 20 years ahead of their ahead of the rest of the world. So it's it's that's how it's been constituted. It's very fortunate. It, it has some of the best real estate in the world and hot springs overlooking the, the coast and amazing food. So it's a, it's quite an experience. You know, if, if someone asked me, 
what are some of the questions that religious institutions can or won't ask? It, it seems to me that the that it's not that they won't ask the questions. They're they're not afraid to ask them. They're afraid to answer them. Mm. It, because the questions that religions ask are the right questions in a sense. What's the nature of life? What's the nature of reality? What's the nature of the human being? But they're afraid to answer them in a way that violates the theology they inherit. And and that's where the patriarchy comes in. That's where the dualism comes in. That's yes, where the dogma. You know, the dogma comes in, right? So I think that... that uh, and there's lots of places like this, but that the and but I think maybe Eslin was the first. That where Eslin comes in is it challenges the answers in such a way in a, in an ex, not just an academic way or a theoretical way, but in an experiential way that it allows you to taste something as opposed to really answer the question, but to taste an answer that we have yet to be able to articulate. But you know from that taste, that whatever answer you've been given so far isn't it. Does that mm. sound right? Yeah, it does sound right. I, I think that Esalen, when I first went there 40 years ago, was a place where they were talking about success scripts. So this is the 1980s, and it was sort of blasphemous on some level for someone to who is in the corporate world to say, you know, am I on a treadmill? that is not serving me. And, you know, I think the 1960s and 70s certainly had people go to the other extreme. But in the 1980s, asking questions about how we have been programmed in our minds to operate from a place of fear, as opposed to a place from love, is sort of deeply woven into the Esalen fabric. And, and I, if there is a dogma for Esalen, it is definitely that love is the universal code of spirituality and um and that you know that's been what eslin's been about for you know all these years and i think there's some who would say well religion has the same code but i think really that's not true that i think if you go into it carefully with with your eyes wide open fear is the the primary code that religion works with at yeah, least western at least western religion yeah. Richard Rohr and I've talked about this a bit. Richard is a student. He came to the Modern Elder Academy campus in Baja as a student, amazingly, for Lynn Twist's Soul of Money workshop. And because we are growing into Santa Fe, New Mexico, as our next location after Baja uh, with, with Mo the Modern Elder Academy, he's become a good friend because he's based in New Mexico. And one of the things he says is that, you know, institutions, all of them, but let's focus on religions right now, there's sort of a there's a there's a process where they have an inspired leader or an inspired uh, yes an inspired leader someone who was the missionary who gets the message out and then it's they start to build you know the, the structure around that and in building the structure around it is when the fear starts to be fomented because there's an element of they have to feed the machine and so you know, whether it's modern religions uh, or any something else, you get to a place where systems and processes take precedence. And at, at that point, some of the freedom of thinking and the ability to see love as the connective tissue of humanity gets lost. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what happens, to, I guess, like you're saying, with all institutions. I mean, that's the challenge, I guess, is to keep, if, if you can speak of an institution having a heart, to keep the heart of an institution open. So, so let me let me ask you about Burning Man, and then we're going to go to the book. So, like you said, let's the, the mission statement of Burning Man. So here's a bit of that mission statement. There says, "quote We believe that the experience of Burning Man can produce positive spiritual change in the world." So that's nothing, nothing, nothing small about that. But when I read it, I thought of this historian Molly Worthen. Mm-hmm. And she talks about emerging American spirituality, and she says it's not so much about positive spiritual change in the world, but about personal optimization, and that that contemporary American spirituality is highly individualized, mm-hmm. and it's about improved sleep, better health, personal tranquility, and successful entrepreneurship. It's, it's like instead of you know, trying to make it to Nirvana, you're trying to make it on Shark Tank or something. No, that's me. She doesn't say that. You know, I'm just, I'm just putting it that way. And I'm wondering, you know, if, if your sense, you know, I mean, you're in the business world, you're, you're with Airbnb, but you have also this deep spiritual connection. If your sense is that business or, or, or maybe capitalism itself is the wrong place to try to work out world-changing spirituality. Yeah, there's a Yes, let me unpack some of that. Yeah. I wouldn't call Burning Man capitalism, but I would say that are there a lot of capitalists who go to Burning Man? Absolutely. And that's one of the challenges of Burning Man is that sort of the caste society of what are called the plug-and-play camps where wealthy people come in and they don't do any of the kinds of giving that's done. So it's, it's a giving economy. Let's start by saying, you know, yes, you pay to get into Burning Man, but once you're in Burning Man, the only thing that costs you any money is coffee and ice. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a gift economy where people actually walk from camp to camp and they have a meal or drinks or things like that because everybody's just sharing things. It's, you know, unique in that way. I, I would say that one other thought about Burning Man is that it's a... Emile Durkheim studied, French sociologist studied uh, religious pilgrimages back in around 1910. And he coined a, a phrase, collective effervescence. And in coining that phrase, he was really speaking to the idea that when people are in a mission aligned group of others and they feel a deep sense of connection, their, their sense of ego separation starts to melt. And what emerges in its place is communal joy. That is what I've seen at Burning Man. I've seen it at the Modern Elder Academy. I've seen it in places where it's not a capital. It's not, it's not about personal optimization. Yes, people do go to Burning Man to have ultimate high and take psychedelics and get laid. That does exist. I'm not, I'm not here to, to, to say that doesn't. But I will say that I think the part that is beautiful around Burning Man is the utopian society, the element of how, as, as Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, once said when he first was there, this is like how the world would be if artists ruled the world. And I think there's something to that. And there's a utopian spirit to the place. And yet there are a lot of capitalists there. And a lot of capitalists go there to blow their mind, get creative, and maybe make some contacts along the way. And that's where the that's where I can see Molly's quote being relevant because it's, you know, yeah. if Burning Man has become a networking event, God gotta help Burning Man because 
that's, you don't go to Burning Man to have a, a schedule. <laughs> One of the 10 principles of Burning Man is immediacy. Immediacy means when someone says to you, how, how, how about when I, I'm at Burning Man next week, let's meet at noon at the man on Tuesday. That if someone ever said that to you, the first thing to say to them is <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Because the the reason you go to Burning Man is because you want you want to have Epiphany have her weight with you, you want you want serendipity to rule the day, and and that means you you don't have calendar calendared events and you and you don't try to network. You actually just you you see who shows up in your life there and you see what kind of how your mirror neurons can play with each other or dance with each other. Well, I mean, that the way you describe it, it I, I feel like I've missed out by not going. And now I can't afford the ice <laughs> and I don't drink coffee. So I don't know. Maybe I, I should go anyway. No, it sounds it sounds really fascinating. It's something that I, I think it's definitely worth probably experiencing at, at least once. Do you still go every year? You know, back in the day, I, I went pretty much every year for maybe almost 20 years. And so I, I, you know, I'd say I went 13 of 20 years in a row. I have not gone for the last five years. Part of that's been COVID. Part of that's been, you know, yeah. just busy. And, and part of it is an element for me of feeling, I love Burning Man, but it, it, as Henry David Thoreau once said, the cost of something is measured by how much life you have to give for it. Burning Man is a, is a big commitment. You're, it's far away. It's a pilgrimage. You have to get prepared for it. You have to get once you once you come home, you have to clean up, you know, because it's a bit of a mess, all this dust everywhere. And so in some ways I, I've had I've come to a place in my life where I have recognized that I've loved my experiences at Burning Man. And I don't want to say I've outgrown Burning Man because I don't think anybody can. I think what I have done is I have gotten clear that there's other things I want to spend my time doing. And, you know, I, I've overinvested in my Burning Man relationship and maybe underinvested in some other areas. Okay. Well, I can appreciate that. When, at this at this point in my life in my seventies, when I think of Burning Man, I immediately think of Preparation H. So maybe <laughs> maybe I'm too old for the whole thing. So let's let's leave Esalen. Let's leave Burning Man. Let's go to Wisdom at Work: The Making of a Modern Elder, your most recent book. And I'm going to take a hopefully a, a, a different tack with this book because there were so many interesting facets to it. So hopefully this isn't just going to be the kind of interview you've done a hundred times. And I want to pick up on something that you write early on in the book. And I, I'm going to quote you back to yourself. And you say, yesterday, I woke up with a 57-year-old man in my bed. And more painfully, he showed up looking back at me in my bathroom mirror. I may, I may feel 17, but catching a glimpse of my badly lit 57-year-old image is awful-tasting truth serum. So, you know, I, I get what you're saying, right? You feel 17, but you're actually 57. Now, today, you're in your early 60s. So mm -hmm. do, you, do you feel 19? Do you feel 21? <laughs> you know, I, I really want to explore this because yeah. I, don't, I don't get what it means and I'm, I'm just a couple of days away from finishing my 72nd year. Yeah. I don't get what it means to feel 17 or 21 or, or even 62. What, what, are you, what are you thinking of? Yeah, and I am 62. I, I would say, you know, it's interesting, five years later or six years later, as I hear that, 
I probably wouldn't write that again because what it's it's glorifying is the idea that youth is what we all aspire to. And I'm a, I'm I've become more and more of the belief that aging can be aspirational. Social sciences social scientists have shown the U curve of happiness and what it, what their research has shown across all cultures around the, the world is that we have a long slow decline in life satisfaction from our early 20s to around 45 to 50. And then we bottom out. And then with each passing decade after age 50, we feel better and better. Our life satisfaction continues to grow with every single decade. So it's like a, it's like a you, a, a big smiling you. And what that suggests is that I think as we get older, if we're smart, we stop playing on the playing field of youth, which is our body, our looks in our body. And, and yes, it could be our energy. I have a lot of energy, that's for sure. But the truth is that as we get older, you know, the playing field of the body couldn't be, can be replaced by the playing field of the heart, our emotional intelligence, our relationships, the playing field of spiritual curiosity, because, you know, as, as Richard Bohr says, you know, the first half of our life, our primary operating systems are ego. And the second half of our adult life, it's our soul. But nobody gave us a warning or operating instructions for this, this, new, this new operating system that we've installed around age 50. And, you know, there's wisdom. There's wisdom and there's, there's actually brain function that, that actually gets better with age. So I guess I would just say uh, today, I probably wouldn't make the connection of like saying, you know, I'm 57, you know, as I was when I wrote that, and I feel 17 and I'm lamenting how, what I look like in the mirror. I'm, a, I'm more of a believer that, you know, the more comfortable I got in my own skin, the more it started to sag. <laughs> so I, I don't mind the sagging. I don't mind not trying to look like I used to. Now for women, this is a harder one because, you know, I'm a, I, you know, Modern Elder Academy is a pro-aging product, but most products out there in the world, there's an anti-aging industrial complex. And most anti-aging products are really anti-women products because they're oriented toward helping women feel better about their physical looks as they age. And I, I think that's a, a, you know, a really important thing for us to remember is that you know, there's a lot of ageism associated with getting old, a lot of sexism that's associated with getting older. There's also ageism. And, and for women, they often are in a situation where they feel invisible and the way that they had currency in the past, they no longer have. Now, men have their issues too. And this is really more the topic of my next book, Learning to Love Midlife. For women, it's invisibility. For men, it's irrelevance. Those are the two most fomenting thoughts and, and that people struggle with often in their midlife. But if women can realize they don't have to be judged on their looks as much as they used to, and if men can realize there's other ways to be relevant, and then, then all of a sudden we have solved Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. So I think those are those are really important points. I'm glad you raised those. But but I want to get back to the bathroom mirror because here here's my issue. This is just personal. 
you know, I'm, I'm talking to you instead of going to therapy. So <laughs> I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror. I don't even know who that guy is, right? Not because I identify with a, with me at 35. I don't know who that guy was. <laughs> the, it seems like the older I get, I don't seem to be anybody in particular. You know, I, I mean, there's a brand, there's Rabbi Rami, who's got 36 books and who has a podcast and, you know, editor, contributing editor to Spirituality and Health Magazine. He's got all these things. But when I look at the guy looking back at me in the mirror, it doesn't seem to be that guy. When I try to, to, to think, okay, I'm finishing my 72nd year of life, that doesn't feel like anything in particular. It, it doesn't have any resonance with me whatsoever. It seems, and I'm going to ask if you feel the same way as you're getting into your deeper into your 60s, it seems to me the older I get, now this sounds dumb now that I'm hearing it in my head, but the older I get, the less I seem to be anybody at all. Yeah, beautiful. Does that does that make sense to you? Okay, so what what, what am I saying, or should I should I you know get myself committed? No, you shouldn't get yourself committed. But it, it, <laughs> in some ways, you know, you're because and you, I'm, I'm sure your primary operating system changed way before you were in your midlife because of the profession that you're in and the writing that you've done. But you know, it, being able to be less objectified about our body as somehow defining who we are is a, an incredibly liberating experience because it's more like this is just the this is the uber my, the body my body is the uber that i'm taking that is the delivery vehicle for my soul and so yeah this just like a car as it ages doesn't look as good as it did was fresh off the assembly line the fact is that you know I, a great sofa that that ha great leather sofa that has a patina over time only gets better with age. And so, you know, we are each our own versions of a sofa. It doesn't mean you don't have, you know, you're not long in the tooth. You are going to be long in the tooth. You're not going to look as good as you did. But, but I, I think being able to disconnect our sense of who we are from who we look like and, and instead ask ourselves, how does life feel for us? Not as how does it look? That is a huge liberation. So how how does it feel for you? Mm. Can you articulate that? You know, it's interesting. You know, it, I define wisdom as metabolized experience, which leads to distilled compassion. And I believe that as I've gotten older, I've been able to see the pattern recognition in my life the metabolizing of experience to see, okay, I am playing out that role again. Uh, I felt it today. I felt badly today. So how does it feel? Today it felt badly because I could see at age 62, like, Chip, you're just like, you're, going, you're trying to be the hero again. That's your archetype, Chip. You're trying to be the hero. Step away from being the hero and step away from being the anxious achiever. Step away from some of these roles that you have inhabited because you can see where they go. So I will I won't say that it feels so today has been a tough day because I've been I have been able to notice my patterns. And you know, I, Carl Jung famously said, you know, it's when when you make unconscious conscious, you you know, fate becomes destiny. 
And you really have the ability to curate your life moving forward because you're not being influenced by the shadow self that is, you know, lurking underneath the surface, but, you know, beneath, beneath your vision. And so I think as we get older, that shadow self becomes more evident. And for some people, that's really hard and they just drink more or they work harder or they look for a younger version of their spouse. And for others, it's depressing because it's like, oh, wow, I, you know, what got me here is not going to get me there. And so for, I think that's why, you know, MEA exists. I I lost five friends to suicide in midlife during the Great Recession. And part of the reason I created the Modern Elder Academy was to help people reimagine and repurpose themselves in a cohort of people who are similarly in the midst of navigating their midlife transitions. And I, I think it's just desperately unfortunate that as a culture, we have rites of passage for bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, communions, you know, graduation ceremonies, weddings, baby showers, but between baby shower and death and your funeral, there's really nada, there's nothing. And I'm, you know, part of the, the reason MEA exists is to help create some rites of passage and rituals for people uh, along their middle passage. Yeah, that kind of, that kind of rite of passage is absolutely necessary. And, and I would take a couple of minutes to ask you more about that, but I'm not going to at the moment because I want to go back and ask you who told you, Chip, step away from being the hero, you know, who, what part of you was that? It, it, what I what I heard was there's there's a part of you that isn't identified. It, it's like it's like what I this is what I heard because I'm projecting. When I said to you a moment ago that the older I get, the less I seem to be anybody at all. So what I heard is is the the person who isn't anybody at all said to you, who's your real per who's the real chip, right? Said, step back from being the hero, step back from doing what you're doing, because that's not who you are. Who you are is the undefinable, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I mean you use the word soul a couple of times. Maybe you want to call it that. I don't know. But it's it's something that isn't labelable, isn't definable. And that something is speaking and this is a question, is that something undefinable speaking more loudly to you? trying to, to, I mean, it's almost trifurcated. There's the you that is undefinable speaking to the you that is putting on all these personae like the hero and telling you to stop doing that. But really what you need to do is to be that undefinable you, which you already are. Is that? Yeah. yeah? Yeah. Okay. I I think there's accuracy to that. I think that, you know, the, the idea that, I mean, as we've had enough patterns to recognize in our life, we can see that we can interrupt those patterns. So who is actually saying that? I would say it is that soul part of me. And it, and that soul part of me actually is, when, when it's saying it in my 50s or my 60s, wow, if I'm not listening to it, it really is hurting because in some ways it is disavowing something that used to be undercover but this is now the soul becomes like a whack-a-mole at the carnival. <laughs> it starts mm. to pop up and pop up and pop up. And if you're not willing to actually listen to it, you better distract yourself with alcohol or sex or all kinds of other things because that that soul is going to keep coming back. And frankly, I think a lot of the circumstances we have often have 
in midlife are tragic and difficult, partly to actually force our attention on that soul. Could you say that maybe Burning Man started out as a way to listen to the soul, but now it's become a way to distract? Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the person. I, I think oh, it's still, course. I think course, for many people, it's still, it is, you know, the, the Burning Man people say, I have to go back to the default world when the Burning Man's ending. And the default world is you, you just sort of default to what's expected of you. So I think Burning Man still is very much a place where people go to listen to their soul. At the same time, there are a lot of people who go to Burning Man because it's a spectacle. And they want to, they, they want that collective, they want to mainline the collective effervescence, that ideal of communal joy. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's sort of like taking a pill and that's what they're, they're looking for. And, you know, that it's just like anything else. If, if, if all you're doing is trying to have the short-term benefit without doing the short-term, the long-term practice, you know, that's not going to last for very long. Yeah. So let me, let me just, I've got two more questions because I notice where already over the time limit. Yeah, if you got, okay. if you can just give me a couple of minutes. Sure. So you, you mentioned ritual and it's so important, these rites of passage that we don't have that you're trying to help create in your elder work, modern elder workshops. Give us a sense of, of why ritual is important and the kind of things that you see emerging in the programs that you're running. Well, ritual is important because of a couple of things, many things, but I, I'll point out two. One is a ritual or a rite of passage gives you a before and an after. It's a dis it's a distinct line in the sand of saying this is a new time, and uh, you know when people are going through transitions, they often need that because otherwise, you know, they don't really know are they are they in this new era in their life. So ritual helps to define that, and when it's in a rite of passage format where you are doing it in a community, it provides that social support. Um, there's reasons why rites of passage exist around major transition times in, pe in people's lives. And it's partly because the community is coming out in support of the people going through that. So I think those two things are really important. And we weave it into our MEA experience. Within the first 24 hours, people do something called the Great Midlife Edit, because one of the first things we believe people need to do is they need to actually let go of and shed the identities, the mindsets, the habits that aren't serving them anymore. I and mean, we go through a whole process to help people get to those. But when we do that collectively, you know, and throw pieces of paper in the fire of what we're letting go of while we're watching the sunset over the ocean, that's, a, that's an experience that you're going to remember the rest of your life. And you're doing it with a collection of 20 or 24 or 28 other people. And those are people over the course of a week who are going to become deeply close to you. Yeah. I mean, that's something that, that is so needed, the, the ritual creation like that. Okay. So, so last question, you, you have this African proverb in the book that I just loved. It's near the end of the book. And it says, when an elder dies, it's like a library has burned down. Mm -hmm. And we live in a time, especially in, in the United States, when we're metaphorically trying to burn down libraries by <laughs> banning books. Yeah. And the idea is, you know, you, you, you cite Jared Diamond's notion that the way a society treats its elders speaks to their perceived usefulness. And we don't put our elders on an iceberg and send them off, you know, in the, adrift in the ocean, maybe because we're running out of icebergs. But we do put them in elder communities where yeah. we, you know, can just 
leave them alone and, and erase any guilt we have because we know that they're we we imagine they're being well taken care of. But I like this idea of a library, and I like it for two reasons. One, because libraries are becoming more rare, I think, in in our civilization. We don't value them the way we used to. We don't value books the way we used to. And maybe I'm just old and in in you know completely digital world, libraries and books are just oh man, you're on you're just too old for this age and you know forget that. But but I I like the metaphor. I think it's really important. So my question is this to what extent in in today's world are elders still libraries? And to what extent do you think society is going to continue to value that that aspect of of elderhood, that library nature of the elder? So a traditional elders is the library, I would say, and, and, it, and it's all the history, all of the past. And generally speaking, kids these days don't go to grandpa or grandma for wisdom. They go to get to Google. And uh, so I do think there's some risk there. And that's why a modern elder is a little different than a traditional elder. A modern elder in, in the form of like a figurative thinking around the, the library is somebody who actually understands the past and understands their own, you know, metabolized experience. But they understand the context of how that book may be relevant to someone who's walking into the library and how it's going to be important to them. When, when, when an elder mistakes war stories as wisdom and they just are reciting to people how the world works and how their life was without sort of customizing that, that wisdom for the individual, that younger person who needs to understand it in the context of the modern world, then you may get someone with a, putting a hand in the face and say, okay, boomer, because there's an element of like, you're just telling me, you know, the way the world worked, not the way the world works. So that's why modern elders have to be curious to look at, you know, how is life, how is the world changing and how it is our wisdom and how it's delivered change with a evolving culture. So I love the library. I love libraries myself, but the bottom line is knowledge is in, in libraries. Wisdom is in people. And ideally, it's in that person that you feel that sense, like, I just had some wisdom shared with me. And that's where, where it's valuable. Because if I want to find knowledge, all I need is my iPhone. Well, back in my day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I'm guilty of that kind of boomer boomerism, mm-hmm. I guess. Very interesting. And Really, it, the book is really fascinating. Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. The next book coming out in January, what title of that one? It's Learning to Love, uh, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. Okay. Our guest today, Chip Conley, is the former head of hospitality and strategy at Airbnb and author of Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. He currently runs the Modern Elder Academy. You can learn more about his work at www.modernelderacademy.com. Chip will be the cover story of the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Chip, thanks so much for joining us at Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks, Rami. Rami. 
Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano and our executive producer is Zach Avery. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality and Health magazine, we thank you for your support. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.